You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. In February, the military in Myanmar, also known as Burma, overthrew the civilian government, which was always sort of a military government, and imposed its own rule on the country. Since then, things have gotten a lot worse. A series of popular demonstrations against the regime have been met with force. The government has also come into conflict with ethnic groups who are aligned with the protesters who have their own long-running insurgencies and militias, raising the specter of a civil war in Myanmar. Hundreds have died, and international observers are expecting things to get even worse as time goes on. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to explain how things got so bad in Myanmar. I am Zach Beecham, here as always with Alex Ward and Jen Kirby, 1N Jen, one of our favorite guest hosts and a Vox foreign correspondent. Hello, Jen. Hey, standing in for the other Jen. Happy to be here. <laughs> That's right. Other other Jen, uh, other Jen has been vaccinated, which is very exciting for other Jen, but may or may not have some symptoms right now. We're not really sure, but it seems like it is best that she stay away from the mic currently. So congratulations to her for, for not having COVID, but for having <laughs> something that is COVID-esque in terms of symptoms. Yes. Alex, you, yes, yeah, you were supposed to say congratulations to our frequent co-host who is not here. Sure, I'll say it to our audience. Yay, Jen, I'm glad you have the, the vaccine. Uh, thus ends the April Fool's section of, of Worldly today. Uh, it is <laughs> April 1st when we're recording this, and we all want to make dumb jokes that trick all of you. Unfortunately, uh, this week's topic is, is a little too serious for us to be making a bunch of frequent jokes as much as we may like to. So uh, I think we're going to start talking now about what's going on in Myanmar. Jen Kirby, walk us through what happened right after the February coup. Yeah, so after the February coup, there was it was sort of began to be a series of popular protests, which started out relatively peaceful, but grew in sort of strength and size as the weeks wore on. You know, people were coming out all across the country in the capital, but even in, you know, other parts of the country where there are more ethnic, you know, minorities. And it really was this groundswell of support that really intensified. But as the weeks grew on, those protests became a lot more bloodier. There were a lot more violent crackdowns from the Myanmar military on these protesters, increasingly uh, more confrontations. And we kind of ended up 
right now at this past weekend where I believe about 140 people died, which brings the total up to somewhere over 500. Some children were killed in the fighting. And even in some areas of Myanmar, you're seeing kind of outbreaks of conflict that's leading to kind of um, even some people to flee across the border into Thailand. So it's getting really, really precarious. A reminder for folks who may not have been following this as closely, that the coup happened on February 1st when the when Myanmar's military, known as the Tatmadaw, decided to basically say, nope, we're going to take over the civilian-led you know, democracy government, where they effectively had control anyway. One of the biggest issues at play is that the democratic government, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, she wanted to pass a lot of constitutional reforms. And to do so, you needed above 75% of parliament to agree. The problem is the military in the 2008 constitution that it drafted uh, gave themselves at, at least 25% of seats automatically. So an effect veto power. So as she pushed for those uh, reforms, the military was like, we've basically had enough. There were other issues, but that was basically the issue at play. But importantly, Myanmar had been on a roughly decade-long journey of opening up, of being more democratic, of having foreign investment come in, of, of seeing, you know, people's freedoms be completely different than they had been in decades. And it looks like now that the military has, you know, put a kibosh on that, they're, they're fighting for that freedom again that they've gotten a taste of and that, they've been, that many people in Myanmar have been pushing for for quite some time. What experts told me during uh, the coup or right after was this is going to be a problem for two reasons. One, you are going to see a bunch of people, you know, continue to protest and push for democracy, which we've been seeing. And what they worried about was like Myanmar is a nation that is awash with weapons. It is it is rife with ethnic uh, insurgencies um, that have been fighting, you know, Myanmar's military for quite some time. It is a pretty dangerous state that is, you know, really fractured and and, and broken in many areas. And so they worried, like this was the worst case scenario, was if there's a coup, there's going to be a large pro-democracy backlash. And then on top of that, you might see the military try to crack down on ethnic groups that it's been fighting for for years. And that's what we're seeing. And that's why it's such a precarious situation. Yeah, these are roughly two different sorts of reactions to the military's moves. Uh, that is to say, a large peaceful demonstration movement and military resistance by armed groups that have been operating on the fringes of Myanmar for quite some time. And so we're, we're going to discuss each of them in turn and talk about how they come together. First, I want to talk about the, the protest movement, right? I think Alex is point about the length of the transition is really important, right? So it's been a very long process in Myanmar of what's called a pacted transition, where the military, which is in power, makes arrangements and agreements with non-military pro-democracy forces to engage on a slow process of democratization, right? And so this started about a decade ago when military leaders started to liberalize, and then one of them went a little bit further than the previous military leadership had expected, introduced free elections, allowed Aung San Suu Kyi, who had been under house arrest for a very long time, to participate in the democratic political system. Her party won the vast majority of seats. Like It, it really did look like things were getting better. And this was going on for a very long time. And so when things take place over such a large time horizon, you know, 10 years, right? You get a generation of people who have come to see their country as relatively free and open and democratic and see them on a certain pathway and enjoy the, the fruits of the economic investment that Alex was just talking about, right? So you had, as a part of this process, opening up to the rest of the world, a lot of foreign investment, Myanmar, prior to COVID and the current coup, Myanmar was one of the fastest growing economies uh, in Asia, which is pretty impressive. It was not particularly impressive prior to its liberalization. But now 
the whole situation is in complete shambles, right? If you're a foreign company, you don't want to be investing in a situation where the politics are so risky because you don't know what's going to happen to your investment. You don't know if the country is going to slide into armed conflict, civil war, prolonged economic stagnation. And without that foreign investment and trade plus sanctions imposed by foreign countries over the coup, you have both parts of the transition process that made this so beneficial to the population of Myanmar, the political liberalization that allowed them to have a voice in their government, and the economic liberalization and growth that helped improve their standard of living, both of those have collapsed. And, and the situation is dire. So it makes sense that you'd see thousands of people in the country, especially in the country's cities, standing up to the military despite truly brutal repressive tactics being deployed against the protests. And, it, you know, early on, the military, you know, right after the coup, they sort of let these protests happen because they thought they would fizzle out. For those two reasons that I just described, the protests had legs well beyond what the military expected. So they've decided to respond and retaliate with force, an escalating force, right? Recently, there was a the pretty horrible massacre. Jen, do you remember how many people died? I don't remember. It was, it was awful. I think it was about 140. Is that right? Yeah. R- roughly. Yeah, estimates are around 114 to about 140, but, but it's over 100 for sure. And it's it's at least a fifth of all the who have died since the coup. And I think, too, one of the reasons why the protests have had legs is because of the increasingly repressive tactics of the military. We've seen this in other protest movements that the the force with which, you know, these peaceful demonstrations are met tend to galvanize and unite groups that might not otherwise work together. And that's really what we're seeing in Myanmar. You know, it's interesting when the coup had first happened, I talked to a lot of human rights advocates from uh, Myanmar, and they were very pessimistic about the ability for a sustained protest movement because they felt that in a lot of ways, the illusion of democracy, which was wiped away by the coup, had kind of revealed a sort of weak civil society that, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the leader, had kind of not really developed a pro-democracy movement behind her. But that's actually, I feel, proved to be be rather the opposite as we've seen these protests develop. And I think part of the reason is back to my original point, which is that the increasing use of force by the military has really broken the trust with the government, uh, with the people, rather, um, particularly the, the Buddhist majority. And now you're seeing you know, that fanning out into a more unified resistance and outreach with some of the more marginalized ethnic groups like the Rohingya and and others to kind of form this almost popular and united resistance, not to jump ahead too much, but these protesters put forward a, a sort of interim government called the United States of Myanmar, um, a nod to all of the different ethnic groups. So you're really seeing a kind of remarkable and really swift, I would say, movement in Myanmar. That that tells me that the democracy push here is, is I think, a lot stronger than some people wanted to give it credit for. And I th- this is a complicated issue, but let's go into two parts of why this is the case. The first is actually, I think, the simplest one, which is, you know, when since the opening up during the democratic process, telecommunications companies came in like crazy. And a nation that was, you know, barely on the internet now had social media and cell phones and 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 con- connectivity that still exists. Part of the thing that the military is doing now is like every night trying to basically stop, uh, you know, shut off the internet so people don't use it. But it's it's worked as an organizing tool that's been pretty effective. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing the sustainability of this movement is they just they can organize and, and at light speed and, and get information in, in in ways they couldn't before. The other is just the complicated figure of Aung San Suu Kyi herself. She has been the pro-democracy figure in that country for for decades. In power, uh, we've talked about in the show before, has 
basically defended the military's, um, you know, ethnic cleansing campaign for some genocide of the Rohingya. But she still is now that she has been jailed under very false pretenses. It looks like, you know, importing radios and stuff like that, which is just seems insane. Um, there's some concern they may charge her for treason, which isn't happening yet. But that that's a concern throughout her sort of judicial process, quote unquote. She has this movement and people are like, this is unfair to her. This is, and this is unfair to democracy and herself. They've sort of used her as the embodiment of that democratic movement. And so there is a symbol for which at least the, the, the protesters to quite literally almost, you know, uh, rally around. The ethnic conflict is a separate thing. But what's interesting is it seems from, from what when you just said, Jen, is there's always been, you know, there are tons of different interests in the country from ethnic groups and, and protesters and, and among sections of the, of the ethnic groups themselves. But they all seem unified in a common enemy at this point. And like the big question is, can they all unify against the Tatmada? And I think that's still very open, but I think these are these are the embryonic stages of that larger conversation, which, you know, the good of that is there is a unified movement against uh, the military junta. The bad side of that is, well, then you start to have really clear dividing lines that, you know, potentially could escalate into a broader, more definitive civil war. So we've been talking a lot about the relationship between democracy and the ethnic groups in Myanmar. And I really want to drill down on this, right? Because it it reveals two things. First, that democracy in Myanmar prior to the coup was never all that democratic, right? And, and partially this is because the military had as much power and given itself as much power as it wanted beforehand. But second, it's because Aung San Suu Kyi ran a kind of ethno-nationalist party, right, that catered to the Burman-majority ethnic group, primarily. It wasn't designed to incorporate the many different ethnic groups across Burma, uh, like the Kurin, for example, which are, are one of the one of the significant minorities in the country. And this was especially on display with the, the military's targeting of the Rohingya minority group, a predominantly Muslim group that they engaged in a campaign of slaughter against uh, that is properly turned to genocide, as, we, as we've discussed. And Aung San Suu Kyi went to the UN and actually defended the military's conduct in that case, right? And it, there's a big debate about whether this was strategic, right? She's just trying to secure her place with the military, or whether this was actually politically appealing. That is to say, among her a core Burman constituency, there was a lot of hatred against the Rohingya. That meant the ethno-nationalist tendencies of the uh, National League for Democracy, that's Aung San Suu Kyi's party, meant that you didn't see or, or might not have expected to see a huge amount of support from the country's many minority organizations for a restoration of the NLD after the coup. But it turns out that's actually what happened. Despite broad suspicions among leaders of these minority groups about the direction Myanmar was heading under Aung San Suu Kyi, they still seem to have decided that some kind of democracy is preferable to military rule, the military being even harsher on ethnic minority groups than the you know, mainstream pro-democratic movement was. And so you've, you've seen this emerging alliance between ethnic groups, which uh, importantly, many of whom have military wings, right? There are a series of long-running insurgencies in Myanmar um, that are generally aligned with particular ethnic minority groups the military had not been able to quell prior to this. So you have a situation now where there's this big umbrella pro-democracy group, we've mentioned a few times here, that has come up with, with basically an agreement with a series of these different armed militias and rebel groups to present a united front against the military government. This is both good and bad. 
Yes, it's both good and bad because, I mean, this is sort of, you know, on one hand, it's the potential ideal of democracy, multi-ethnic democracy, where you have all of these groups coming together and they are sort of united against the common enemy. And and you see a sort of a breaking of some of that, the ethno-nationalism that has dominated Myanmar's, I guess, it's not quite democracy, democracy-ish. At the same time, when you are bringing a lot of groups together that do have longstanding differences that may ultimately have different aims about the future of the countries and also have a lot of weapons, you have a potential very volatile situation that could potentially lead to some sort of of more, shall we say, a potential civil war, right? Um, Where you basically have groups who have military weapons who fought the government for a long time who potentially could unite with other groups and you could see a more intensive kind of fighting and that is not that is not exactly what the world wants in sort of the most basic um, broad terms just to dig slightly into military literature here insurgencies or movements like these do not end pretty easily uh <laughs> to put it mildly usually the government has the upper hand in the sense of, like, they might not win, but they don't typically fall against insurgencies. Um, it could be protracted for a while, and the, re- the government basically has to collapse upon itself or completely lose the legitimacy of the population. Insurgencies typically lose in some sense because they're not delivering on what the people want. We'll talk about the Karen more in a bit, but there's, a, there's talk of, you know, their militia group, their insurgent group, as this all-encompassing entity. And the problem is they haven't delivered on their like state of, you know, for, for Korean people, um, even though it's the longest-running civil war in the world. Uh, you know, it's been going on really for, for, for multiple decades now. And so what you're seeing is now when you see the military attack these groups, they are, you know, you have Korean people like running into Thailand or internally displaced or living in these sort of refugee camps. And they're just not getting what they have been told they, you know, are going to get or what the people have been fighting for. So the the the, the insurgent group has been losing a lot of legitimacy. So I mention all this not just to, to dig into military literature I used to dig into quite often. But the reason is, like, you know, something like this, if it escalates, not only will it be bloody and, and terrible, but it could last a really, really long time. The two sides are so ideologically opposed. It's not clear exactly who would win. And in the worst and worst of worst case scenarios, you would probably get, you know, foreign nations to get involved beyond sanctions, maybe even militarily, or arming certain groups to fight the other. And to do that in an already volatile region um, in Asia uh, is bad enough. But civil war fueled by others, if we get to that point, makes it a really, really bad way to go. So this is what's got me worried and a bunch of other experts worried. Uh, I'm not an expert, just just some guy. Uh, but like when I talk to experts, they're extremely worried about what this might mean. The natural comparison point here is Syria, right? Like that's sure. the, the few people have made this comparison in, in observing this. And as someone who was following Syria when the civil war started, I have to admit that the parallels are, are pretty eerie, right? Syria started off as a mass movement against not not exactly a military regime but a dictatorship that was functionally propped up by its military right like it was the overwhelming majority of the country's population was opposed to Assad and wanted the Assad government to collapse and so there were popular demonstrations across the country that were designed to bring about the regime's fall as you saw in other arab spring countries and the regime responded 
uh, in exactly the way that the Burmese regime is responding right now with force, right? The entire point of the Syrian response in some ways was to militarize the conflict. The idea being that they couldn't sustain themselves against mass protests and strikes and civil disobedience, but the the Assad regime gambled, it turned out correctly, that if they forced rebels to use arms to defend themselves, that they could probably win a protracted conflict. This is somewhat counterintuitive, right? Like you might think that it's easier for a government to repress a peaceful movement than one that actually takes up arms against it. But it turns out the the data on this over a long period of time suggests nonviolent resistance movements are more effective in causing regime change. Uh, and there, there are a variety of reasons for this. One is that in armed conflict, central governments tend to have more powerful forces. Another is that there's a serious ability to uh, to pry and separate parts of the regime when you're facing nonviolent resistance. You know, you you create real incentives for elites in the government to defect uh, and to align themselves with the rebels. You put international pressure on the regime in this case. All sorts of different reasons for this. But the point is, it was rational for Bashar al-Assad to crack down with such violent, cruel displays of force that the the uh, you know resistance movement would feel no choice but to take up arms and there's a real concern that that's what's happening right now in Myanmar that the regime has calculated similarly that it can't survive against a, such a large nonviolent protest movement which is now forcing the protesters to start to rely more and more on these non-state militias the ethnic groups and even to arm themselves right there's a really distressing interview um, in, in Mother Jones with a with a Buddhist practitioner in Myanmar, the, the majority's Buddhist there, who has really committed himself to nonviolence as not just, you know, an ideology, but like as a way of ordinary practice of life. Right. Like, you know, at one point in the interview, he says he like his friends say he doesn't want to swat a mosquito when one's biting him. But this guy who's on the run from the regime right now because of his role in the protests is about to attend and maybe already attending a seminar uh, that's basically military training, right? Like several weeks of learning to fight. And, you know, at one point in the interview, he breaks down crying, uh, apparently because he just doesn't feel like this is an ethical thing to do, but he has, he feels like he has no choice because of the way that the regime has responded, the military regime. And that's really, really frightening for anyone who has watched the course of Syria, because this is not only how the military regime is capable of sustaining itself over a long period of time, but it means large-scale human suffering over the course of years. It's been a decade in Syria, and the civil war still isn't over. That's really, 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 really scary. And we you should add that it, this is an, a region and a country that has already faced suffering. The Rohingya refugee crisis, as we've mentioned, the Muslim minority that lives primarily in the Rakhine state of Myanmar was brutally <laughs> murdered um, uh, systematically uh, by the, the Myanmar military. There are almost a million, I believe, refugees in um, neighboring Bangladesh. And there have been plans to try to bring them back home. Over this past week, there was a massive fire in that refugee camp, which meant tens of thousands of people lost whatever shelter, food, belonging they have. So this is already an area that is kind of at its breaking point when it comes to a humanitarian crisis. So you can imagine what happens if you pile on an actual Syria-level type escalation and what that would mean for both Myanmar and all of the countries that surround it, including China. Uh, that's a perfect place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to really dig into these international dynamics, talking about what it, this conflict means for the region and what international actors could do 
to prevent an escalation into full-on civil war. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the situation in Myanmar, which is rapidly approaching a really, really scary point of no return uh, in terms of armed conflict uh, in the wake of a February coup. But now we want to shift gears a little bit to move away from the internal dynamics of what's happening in Myanmar to the regional and global dynamics, because these are pretty serious too, right? If you look at a map, uh, and I pulled one up to make sure that I got all of this right while we're talking, Myanmar's northern borders are both very long and next to two large and very important countries, India and China. Uh, the border with India also is next to a few states that have long-running insurgencies of their own. Nagaland, for example, has had an insurgency since the 1950s that's been ongoing on and off in terms of intensity against the Indian central government. India and China have had conflicts over the border on their area over there, and China is not keen, to put it mildly, on refugees flooding into its borders. Uh, nor is Bangladesh, uh, which also shares a border with Myanmar, and then you have Thailand, which is also a not especially stable uh, military control regime. So Myanmar is in a very, very, very important position in terms of South Asian and Southeast Asian regional dynamics. Alex, talk us through the security implications of the, the crisis getting even worse there. Well, based on what experts are saying, like it, I mean, it could just grow into a a larger scale war in in, in South in, in Southeast Asia, which is just not good. <laughs> um, so, I mean, at the most basic level, you've got Russia and China backing the military, which is not entirely, you know, a perfect alliance. It's just Russia and China sell a lot of weapons to the country, and and they, and especially Russia's just kind of been there being like, hey, military, you're doing great work um, in the midst of all this. You have the U.S. and a bunch of other Western countries being like, hey, guys, stop it. You've got Thailand trying to stop people from flooding into its country. 
you've got Bangladesh already strapped with uh, refugees from the Rohingya, and, and India is trying to get involved um, as well. And so this is clearly like an, of international concern. The question people have is, does anyone actually want to get like militarily involved? And we already have some of that involvement. China, for example, arms one of the ethnic groups in the north, uh, which seems a bit odd, right? Because if they're sort of backing the military, why would they arm an ethnic group? But um, there are myriad reasons here that are too complicated, too complicated to get into. But like, this is part of the problem is that there are just weird, weird, overlying, you know, intricate interests happening in Myanmar. And that's what makes like solving something like this extremely hard, not only internally, but externally. Like, who has the pressure and the legitimacy to maybe come in and go, hey, guys, can can we find a solution here? Can we knock it off? And no one really seems to want to get any real skin in the game other than maybe sanctions, right? The U.S. has, has done some sanctions on the country, but just uh, on Wednesday, you had the Pentagon be like, you know, we, we know of no military role for the United States. Nothing could probably get through in the United Nations Security Council because Russia and China are veto-wielding members. And so let's say, you know, any countries wanted to put forward some sort of like responsibility to protect resolution, um, if it ever got to that level, uh, you'd probably see those two countries go, no, probably not, in which case there would be no sort of international legitimacy. So like it's I'm I'm struggling a bit here because the the variables here are pretty impressive and this they're just really all over the place. And this complicated situation is made far more complicated uh by all of these dynamics. <laughs> the dynamics are extraordinarily complicated. You know, Alex, as you reported this week, the United States has taken increasingly aggressive action. The United States trade representative has cut off a some degree of trade with Myanmar. And so the economic pressure certainly seems to be where the United States potentially has its most leverage. And you've seen a kind of concerted effort among um, Western allies to, to put pressure on Myanmar and to condemn what is happening. But of course, on the other side, you have China, which I think is kind of the most interesting of the, the players because China is sort of torn here, right? Between its two things that it, it, it can't decide what it hates more, chaos or democracy, right? China really, really does not like chaos. And I am sure the idea of chaos on its border is something that it, it does not want to even entertain. At the same time, uh, they can't in any way, shape, or form come out on the side of democracy because of that is against, you know, that all China does is try to suppress its democratic movements as you know, case in point in Hong Kong. And so how China responds is going to be really interesting. And I don't quite know if I have an answer for it yet. And I'm curious if any of you do. What does seem to be an interesting dynamic as well, as Zach alluded to before, is who could be a potential honest broker in this conflict. And in many respects, the protesters in Myanmar see China as on the side of the the Myanmar military. So it's not quite clear how they could potentially involve themselves in a way that would be productive. But I think that is China and how it responds is still, I would say, a wild card. And I'm, I'm curious how you guys see it. It's complicated because prior to the, the coup, right, one of the military's grievances with the civilian leadership is that it was getting too close to China. Right. right? The, the military sees China as a threat to its security. Not surprisingly, China's an extremely powerful country, and it has a very long border with China. I can understand why you would think that. But the civilian government was more interested in securing um, closer relations with China, maybe partly for economic reasons, 
And the military thought that this led to a degree of underplaying of the security threat and was endangering Myanmar, making it more vulnerable to Chinese pressure. So arguably, that was one of the incentives for the coup in the first place. It wasn't like the reason for it, but certainly played into the military's calculation. So if you're the Chinese government, Right, you're, you're caught in the way that Jen was just describing. In principle, you don't want to support a pro-democracy movement. But at the same time, the leaders of the pro-democracy movement are more sympathetic to your interests in the country in question than the military dictatorship is, uh, which puts China in a very strange position. It also means that no one especially trusts China, but also given the significance of China's economic role in Myanmar gives China tremendous amounts of leverage that a distant country like the United States doesn't have. Now, the other large country on Myanmar's border, India, is almost like a mirror image of the same dynamics, right? India is nominally a democracy, though there's been a lot of backsliding under Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, and so, in theory, you would expect India to side with the pro-democracy protesters. And they've, they've issued some like sort of noises surrounding this but have largely been very quiet and non-assertive. And the reason, uh, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is that there are all sorts of insurgencies and military conflicts in Northeast India, which is where it borders Myanmar. And those insurgencies cross the border, right? Some of them have bases on the Myanmar side of the border. And so the Indian government needs the military in Myanmar, specifically the military, not just the government in general, but the actual armed forces, to help them deal with these long-running armed conflicts and separatist movements in those regions. So they don't want to come out too hard on the side of the protesters because even though they have leverage and uh, you know influence in the country, because they don't want to lose the military's cooperation in their own conflicts there. So you have the two countries that you would think would be India and China that are large and have a lot of interest in what happens in Myanmar, not exactly on the side that you would expect them to be on, kind of cross-pressured in weird ways. But the point is, neither of them are, are playing an especially productive role right now in terms of trying to tamp down what the military is doing and encourage a, a real transition to a new democratic constitution. Not, not to sound cold, but like, what could they do? Right? This is the question I sort of have, which is no one wants chaos, I agree. You know, no one wants, you know, instability and, and, and further fighting. But one, a lot of this fighting and instability has been going on for years. Yeah, there's been some ceasefires, for example. But, I mean, again, the current conflict with you know, the military has been going on for decades, roughly. Um, and who wants to, you know, send their troops in or tons of security fighter, you know, security members to stop the fighting and in between the military and the pro-democracy movement and, and the ethnic groups. I don't think anyone has the stomach for that or even the resources for that or the long-term and no one wants to put in such a long-term investment. This is what has me sort of worried here is that not that I'm advocating for, for military intervention. I just can't imagine that anything short of that will actually have a tangible effect. It is true that, you know, when the U.S. placed sanctions on Myanmar, it was one of the reasons why there was that move from, you know, complete military control to quasi-democratic control with the military still, you know, pulling a lot of the strings. But we saw how, you know, feckless that turned out to be because the, the second, you know, <laughs> the military's rule is threatened, they're like, wait, 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 we're going to come back and take over. So short of a complete redrafting of the Constitution, which, you know, does not get done unless the military feels it's going to lose a fight, and it's probably not going to lose a fight because it's so well-armed and has air power— <laughs> like what changes? And the only thing that I can't imagine anything will, despite a lot of, you know, these nations having the interest that we just described. 
So, like, I'm genuinely asking, like, am, am I crazy here, or is this really kind of a, a hopeless situation? So, Alex, I think there's something really important here, right, is that when we talk about international involvement in a conflict, what you need to think about uh, at, at, at root are the interests of the people involved in the conflict on the ground. And one of the things that comes up a lot is that you can't use marginal tools to affect a core interest of the regime. So if the Myanmar military sees this as an existential struggle, that is to say, if they give up or inaugurate some kind of democratic transition after the coup, then they themselves will be executed, their control in the country will be lost, their um, web of financial interests will be shattered by anti-corruption reforms or something like that. They're not going to give in to any amount of international economic pressure, right? Because if they lose, they lose everything. Similarly, uh, if the uh, ethnic groups see the military as being likely to embark on another campaign of extermination and mass slaughter, you're not going to be able to convince them to stop fighting through some kind of carrot or stick internationally. So the trick in, in talking about international intervention is to figure out whether or not you can negotiate some kind of settlement through a mix of said carrots and sticks that makes each side believe that their interests will be safeguarded at the end. Uh, and so you can imagine some kind of United International Front, where countries like the United States and China and India, uh, with significant amounts of influence, agree to put some kind of pressure on the Myanmar government economically that would push it towards negotiations with the pro-democracy movement and the ethnic groups and come up with some kind of agreement where the military will be protected in certain ways, its interests will be preserved, you know, through something similar to the 2008 constitution where they have constitutional protections. That's like a hopeful scenario, right? Or, or a UN-brokered ceasefire. The problem is that doing that requires really deft and complex diplomacy, and it requires a lot of coordination between international actors that may not be on the best of terms with each other, right? Like I said, the U.S. and China coordinating on this, but if you look at U.S.-Chinese relations right now, things aren't exactly great. Plus, these countries are all dealing with problems of their own, uh, like the coronavirus outbreak, that may give them limited diplomatic and intellectual capacity to try to figure out what to do about Myanmar, which is peripheral to a lot of interests. So, like, this is horrible. It's hard for me to imagine there being any kind of international military intervention for the reasons that Alex just suggested. It's hard for me to imagine there being any kind of effective diplomatic campaign because countries are distracted and international actors are divided about how to handle the situation, both internally in terms of their interests and against each other politically. So I, like, everything is screaming at me that the situation is going to get worse. And that's a horrifying prospect. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo both of what you guys have said already. I think it is a, a pretty dim picture right now for, for Myanmar. At the same time, I think, again, you know, there are areas where it may be impossible to coordinate because, as you said, Zach, their interests of China and the U.S., for example, are not going to align. You're not going to have coordination on the United Nations Security Council. But there is going to need to be a concerted effort, I think, to prepare for the potential humanitarian fallout. And that means that, you know, countries, I think, like the United States, others in the West have to prepare to, um, you know, 
to to put money to potentially welcome um, more refugees. I think that is like, it sounds horrible to say like they need to have a safety net for the disaster that could come. But I think that is potentially the only area where some sort of international assistance cooperation could make a difference and actually potentially easing some of the suffering on the ground that is about to 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 get worse. I, I guess I, one bit I want to mention here as well is I'm struck by an image uh, that I saw in, in a video and I also saw pictures of it. There was um, a funeral for for a child who died on the, the the massacre day of you know which happened to be Armed Forces Day, and of course there was the regular mourning next to the next to the body, but then the mourners started singing revolution songs as they escorted the body to its final resting place, and that's sticking with me because the more I'm noted, I'm watching the situation, the more I'm seeing you know as as Jen mentioned, you know images of like hey we're gonna get rid of this. New con- you know, we're going to build a new constitution. We're going to build a federal states of, of Myanmar, where all these ethnic groups have their own, you know, places of autonomy. Like, we're going to fight here to completely change the way this country operates because having the, the Tatmadaw in charge it isn't working for us. That is another level of sort of an immovable ideology, if that is indeed what's happening. Maybe it was an isolated case. Maybe these are some people just sort of using the moment to get their ideas out there. But it's also possible that this, you know, anti-military movement is coalescing around this ideology of revolution and complete change in Myanmar. And that's hard to, to dissuade as well, right? The, if the military has its own existential interest, but if basically everyone else in the country says, no, we want a democracy or we want at least a different style of government, well, that's hard to dissuade too. And that's what makes a lot of this so hard. You've just got two sides, you know, multiple sides, but more broadly, two sides that do not want to be pushed off their current roads. And it seems like we're headed towards a crash to the point that you even had the UN special envoy for Myanmar predict a bloodbath, quote unquote. That's what's got me extremely worried. So uh, we're going to leave you there. I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work on our podcast. So I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly uh, on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you uh, you like to listen. We're going to be there. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.